me open with this. This is a story that was in Yahoo Finance, December 9 of 2013, so just about three years ago. It says this. It says, American parents are some of the most generous givers in the world, leaving an average of $175,000 to their children, according to a study by HSBC. One in five inheritances are worth about $390,000. Coming into that kind of money without having to work for it is nothing to sniff at. But what if you were born into billions? America is home to the most billionaires in the world, 442 at the time of this writing. We decided, the article says, to take a look at some of the richest American families and turn the spotlight from the billionaires themselves to the heirs and heiresses. So I'm just going to give you a few of them. The Koch brothers, K-O-C-H, the Koch brothers. It's really hard to look at these men simply as heirs. They took over the business from their father. Their estimated net worth is around $36 billion, making them the richest brothers in the United States, but they have served in executive roles within their dad's company for many, many years. Koch Industries, a global conglomerate and the second largest privately held company in the United States. Then there's... uh, Uh, Zachary and Alexa Dell. Zachary and Alexa, uh, their father is Michael Dell, made his fortune founding Dell Computers. He's about $16 billion is his net worth, making him the 25th richest person in the country. His daughter Alexa, at the time was 18, she made headlines when she posted a slew (laughs) of Instagram photos and tweets that revealed her family's secret vacation spot, destroying their $2.7 million a year personal security security team that's supposed to keep their whereabouts private. Isn't that cute? Our kids. We've never done anything like that, right? Younger brother Zachary Dell is quite the entrepreneur. At the age of 15, he co-owns a children's sports camp in Dallas. And then there's the Google Tots. The Google Tots. Google co-founders Larry Page and Sergey Brin, both 40, have matching $25 billion fortunes. Both are parents to some of the richest tots or toddlers in the world. Larry Page has two children, one born in 2009, one born in 2011. And Sergey Brin has one child born in 2009. So let's be honest with each other. Wouldn't we love to be an heir to that fortune? Some of you guys are saying yes with as much passion as I'm asking it. What would we, I would buy my wife dinner. I totally would. I'm not kidding. I would buy her dinner. Wouldn't we love to get a call from Michael Dell that he would like to adopt us and make us an heir to his fortune? While that scenario may seem difficult to imagine, let's actually take it one step further. Imagine, imagine that you or I have been placed in the position of being somebody's servant or slave for the rest of our lives, for the rest of your life. Or that you are serving a lifetime sentence in prison. What would it mean to you if one of those Google boys reached out and not only redeemed you from that condition and set you free, but you were simultaneously declared an heir to all that belonged to them? How cool would that be? You get where I'm going with this, right, church? I hope. Dell, nothing. Koch brothers, nothing. Google boys, nothing compared to the riches that are found in our God and our King. Those riches won't last. They last until the day you die, and then they're all gone. But God offers us riches that last, that are vast and last much longer than that. 
We're in Galatians 4, verses 1 through 11. But we're going to pick up in verse 24 of chapter 3, and then we'll go into chapter 4. I just kind of want to remind us where we were before we get into 1 through 11. Galatians 3, we're going to start at verse 24 and read those verses first to 29. Verse 24 of Galatians 3. Therefore the law has become our tutor, our guardian, to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. We're free. For you are all sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Him. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female. You are all one in Christ. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants and your heirs. Your heirs according to a promise. Like that. Because of what God has done for us. He has made us heirs. It's incredible. Continuing, Paul is continuing his argument to the churches in Galatia that salvation is not gained by merit or works, but only through faith in Jesus Christ. That's what makes us heirs and sons and daughters of God. And Paul further develops the analogy of a child becoming an adult. Let's read Galatians 4, 1 through 11. Galatians 4, verse 1. Now I say, as long as the heir is a child, he's no different at all from a slave, although he's the owner eventually of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by the father. And so we also, while we were children, we were in bondage just like the heir was, under the elemental things of the world. But when the fullness of time came, let me put it to you this way, when God's perfect timing happened, God sent forth Jesus, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem all of us, because all of us were under the law, that we might receive adoption as sons to all the wealth that comes through God. Because you are sons, he sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts so that we can cry out, Abba, Father. We're back in relationship with our Heavenly Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. However, at that time, and this is where Paul's perplexed, at that time, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those things which by nature are no gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by Him, how is it that you want to turn back to the weak and worthless things? You want to go back into the jail cell to which you desire to be enslaved all over again. You observe days and months and seasons and years. And I fear that perhaps I have labored over you in vain. Let's pray. God, we ask for you to reign upon us this morning. God, have your way with us. Lord, thank you that you have set us free and that you have adopted us as your sons and your daughters and all the wealth that belongs to you is now ours as well. Unbelievable. Lord, we thank you and we praise you. In the mighty name of Jesus, and everyone said, Amen. So here's our outline for this morning. We've got two stanzas. The first stanza is verses 1 through 7. And the second stanza is verses 8 through 11. So we're going to talk about being redeemed in those first seven verses. And then there's a 1A, a 1B, and a 1C, if you will. Our condition, 
our redemption process and then the confirmation of being redeemed. And then, of course, our second stanza. All right, so we'll leave that up for just a second. So you, if you're writing that down, it gives you some time to do so. So let's look at our first stanza, being redeemed, uh, verses 1 through 7. 1A, we're going to look at our condition. Let's read those first three verses again. Paul says, Now I say, as long as an heir, as the heir, and the heir in this, in this situation is the, the Jews. They were the ones that God gave the riches to to share with everyone else. So as long as, as the heir is a child... He's no different at all from the Gentile. The Jew and the Gentile are the same, although he is owner of everything, but he's under guardians. The Jews and the Gentiles, we were all under guardians and managers until the date set by God. So that, so also we, while we were children, were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world until God's perfect timing of Christ. The illustration of a child coming of age was easily understood by Jews and Gentiles. There's a ceremony when we go into adulthood in the Jewish uh, culture. What's that called? Bar Mitzvah. In the Greek, the ceremony was called an apaturia. In, in, in Roman culture, the ceremony was called the toga virilis. In my home, it, was, it went like this. Get a job. And it was a short ceremony. It was very touching. <laughs> Seemed a little harsh. I thought we could do it a little bit longer, a little bit more kindly, but, you know. Oh, well, I think I was 12. That seemed a little early, but I went to work at, you know, 12. You know, it seemed like the thing to do. Anyway, Roman children would take their toys in this ceremony and offer them to the gods as a symbol of leaving childhood. And so when Paul writes in Corinthians, he refers to this and he says, When I became a man, I did away with what? Childish things. That's what Paul's referring to. He compares the position and privileges of a child or an heir as being very similar or equal to that of a slave. In the Roman world, children of the wealthy were cared for by slaves. And so they were essentially equal, on equal footing. There was no difference whatsoever. So the figures in these verses, the figures of child or heir and slave are equal and they represent life under the law. The figures of an adult or a son represent life in Christ. And the law, as we discussed last week, was a tutor, the tutor or the guardian that prepared people for adulthood or for Christ. And so the analogy contrasts man before salvation, whether Jew or Gentile, he's under God's law, and man after salvation when he is in Christ. And so these verses tell us two things that there's a need for Jesus. There's a need for Jesus. Those verses say that we are in bondage until the date set by the Father. That's the day Jesus came. And the second thing it tells us is that all of us, Jew, meaning heir or child, or Gentile, meaning slave, have this need. We're all in need. And that's what verse 26 of chapter 3 says. For all, for you are all sons of God, if you put your faith in Jesus Christ. And what that means is, the best Jew or the worst Gentile, you're all in need of God's grace. We are in trouble without it. In verse 3, Paul warns, and er, talks about these elemental things of the world. And he warns the, the Colossians, the churches in, in, of, of Colossa, um, in, in chapter 2, verse 8, he says this. He says, see to it. This is what I would say to you. This is what God says to you. See to it that no one takes you captive. 
through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. Anything rather than according to Christ, you're in trouble. Anything that you make up in your mind, what you think you need or what you think you don't need, if it's rather than Christ, you're in trouble. Nothing and no one can replace Christ. Nothing and no one can add to Christ. Nothing and no one can take away from Christ. Look at John 14, verse 6. Jesus said of himself, he says, I am the way. I am the truth and I am the life and nobody gets to my dad but through me. No ticket, no entry. Paul says the same thing when he writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 5 and 6. He says that there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. The testimony given when? In God's perfect timing. So that was 1A, our condition. Now let's look at 1B, our redemption, verses 4 and 5. Let's read those verses together. But when the fullness of time came, God sent His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that He might redeem those who were under the law, so that we can be adopted. Wow. Not just set free, adopted as sons and daughters. This expression, the fullness of time, refers to the completion of the period of preparation for God's redemption. Let me say that again. It refers to the completion of the period of the preparation for God's redemption. It's God's perfect timing. The law fully accomplished its purpose of showing man his sinfulness and inability to live up to God's perfect standards. It only took us 1,500 years before we realized that, from the time the law was implemented for us to say, hey God, maybe there's another way. We're kind of in trouble here. In Jesus Christ, God provided the righteousness for man that man could not and could never produce or provide for himself. Consider this as well. When you talk about um, in the fullness of time, God's perfect timing, there was a lot going on globally that made it God's perfect timing. Let me just give you a couple of things. Rome instituted something called the Pax Romana, which is peace throughout the Roman Empire, because this is a Roman culture during the Bible times, right? Which gave economic and political stability, which allowed the apostles and the preachers right after Jesus to travel safely through the, through the empire on these newly formed roads and this beautiful infrastructure that God allowed to happen so that the gospel could be spread everywhere. There was a common language. What was the common language? Take a chance. Greek. Where'd that come from? Because who ruled before Rome? Greece, right? Alexander the Great had established a Greek culture throughout the known world, which continued when Rome took over. So conveniently, there's roads to get everywhere, and everybody spoke the same language. Makes it easier to share the gospel. Oh, God's perfect timing. Jesus' birth was not an accident. It was an appointment. He had an appointment. And that's when he came. His perfect timing. Look at verses 4 and 5. I love 4 and 5, the way this flows. But when the fullness of time came, meaning when God's perfect timing came, God sent forth His Son, because He was perfectly God, born of a woman, because He's perfectly man, born under the law, so He's perfectly placed, 
so that he might redeem those who were under the law because he needs to become the perfect sacrifice so that he might, we might receive the adoption as, as sons and get back into a perfect harmony with God. Great verses, 4 and 5. Romans 8, 3 and 4 says it this way. Romans 8, 3 and 4. You have that? Am I, am I ahead of myself? Sorry. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. How? Sending His own Son, perfectly, right? God and perfectly man, in the likeness of sinful flesh, as an offering for sin. And He condemned sin in the flesh because He was perfect. So that the requirement of the law, what's the requirement of the law? That you keep it perfectly. And if you don't, you're guilty of it. And because none of us can, we're all guilty. That's the requirement of the law that only He could fill. So that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. And then we no longer walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Can I get an amen for that? If you recall, to be redeemed means to purchase a slave for the purpose of what? Setting them free. Purchasing a slave for the purpose of setting them free. I don't purchase a lot of things and say, you know, when I buy Captain Crunch, be free, Captain Crunch. I buy the Captain Crunch to eat it. Right? To purchase something for the purpose of setting them free. You, in Roman Empire days, you could purchase a slave. There was about 60 million of them in the Roman Empire. And you could purchase a slave to keep them or set them free. Jesus came to set us free. But he'd only, he didn't only purchase us to set us free. What then did he do after that? Went to the courthouse and adopted us. Every one of us. He doesn't just set us free and say, good luck out there. He's like, come on in. I'm going to make you one of my own. You're an heir to everything that I have. If that doesn't give you goosebumps, I don't know what does. It's incredible. Let's discuss the difference between being children of God and sons of God. When we put our faith in Christ for the first time, we're immediately children of God. We're spiritual infants that need to grow, and that never stops. But our position... Immediately our position is that of an adult son who can draw on the father's wealth and privileges, each one of us equally. Turn to Ephesians chapter 3, literally just a couple of pages to your right. Ephesians 3, 14 through 21. writing to the church at Ephesus. You guys, if we understand what I'm talking about, what God's done for us, how He's redeemed us, how He's just enriched our lives with everything that belongs to Him, that we're heirs of everything, you'll understand why Paul says in verse verse 14, for this reason I bow my knees before the Father. What else? How else are we to respond but to drop to our knees in understanding of what He's done for us in redemption? And that everything that's His belongs to us. And so He says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that He would grant you, church, according to the riches of His glory, to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in the inner man, 
so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with everyone what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge that you may be filled up to the fullness of God. This thing is just ramping up and up and up. But I love verse 20. Now to him, look at these words that he uses. Now to him who is able to what? To do far more abundantly beyond all. Why couldn't he just say who is able to do all that we ask or think? That covers it, right? Oh no, he doesn't say he can do all. To do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think. That's a wealthy, wealthy, wealthy father according to the power that works within us. To Him, Paul writes, to Him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and forever and forever. Thank You, Lord. God bless Your Holy Word. Thank You, Lord. 1C, our confirmation, verses 6 and 7 of Galatians chapter 4. Verses 6 and 7. Because you are sons, God sent forth His Spirit into your hearts so that you and I can cry out, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave but a son. And if you're a son, then you are an heir through God. And so once again, the entire Trinity is involved in our spiritual experience. God the Father sent the Son to die for us, and God the Son sent His Spirit to live in us. And so what that means is that we have the knowledge of, We have the knowledge of sonship through God's Word in our minds. We have the knowledge of our sonship through God's Word in our minds. But we have the essence, these verses 6 and 7 tell us, we have the very essence of sonship through His Spirit in our hearts. Right? The knowledge in our minds, but the essence of sonship in our hearts through His Spirit. The Holy Spirit enables us to confidently cry out, Abba, Father. And we can intimately approach God anytime, under any circumstance, knowing that He always hears us and cares for us. And so the question is, is that how we're living our life with the Lord today? Do we have that intimate relationship that is available to us in the riches that He promised us? Do we intimately approach God anytime, under any circumstance, knowing that He hears and cares for us? I would encourage you to know you can do that. Our second stanza, verses 8 through 11, let's read those, this uh, idea of of relapsing in our faith. Verse 8, However, at that time when you did not know God, you were slaves to those which by nature are no gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how is it that you would turn back again to weak and worthless childish elementary things to which you desire to be enslaved, all over again. You observe days and months and seasons and years and I fear for you that perhaps I have labored over you in vain. Listen, here's what's happening. They were given up the power of the gospel for the weakness of the law. They were given up the power of the gospel for the weakness of the law. They were given up the wealth of the gospel for the poverty of the law. I wonder which words mark our lives and our walk with the Lord? Which words mark our Christian walk? Do our lives represent the power and wealth of the gospel? Or do our lives represent the weakness and poverty 
of our flesh. If we are feeling or experiencing weakness and poverty, something's wrong. We're to be wealthy. We're to be powerful in the Lord. If we're not diligent, if we're not diligent to remain in the power and the wealth of His gospel, we will certainly relapse into the weakness and poverty of our flesh. Did it ever happen to you before? It has me. I'm sure it's happened to many of us. We must be diligent, church. What, is, what does God's Word say? That the enemy prowls around looking for someone to devour. Just wait for a weak spot. Bam! We must be diligent. Look at verse 10. Verse 10 says that you observe days and months and seasons and years. You're very religious. <laughs> if we observe special days hoping to gain some kind of spiritual merit, we're in sin. But if in the observance of those days we express our liberty in Christ and let the Spirit enrich us with His grace, then the observance can actually be a blessing, a spiritual blessing. Let me ask you it this way. Let me challenge you with this. Why do we come to church? Why do we come to church each weekend? Do we come to earn something or to express We need to come to church to express that we understand that we are sons and daughters of the Almighty and we are heirs to everything that is promised to us. And we come to express our gratitude and express our praise and express our devotion. We can't earn anything, church. We can't do it. The law, we're all under bondage to the law. But when Christ came at the perfect timing, we became sons and daughters and heirs to everything that belongs to Him. We don't earn anything. But gosh, I hope we can express ourselves properly when we understand that. The Judaizers, these false teachers that came to the Galatian churches, they had bewitched the people of Galatia. And so because they weren't growing, they were actually regressing. They were relapsing. And so I'd say it this way, that if we're not growing, if we're not growing in our understanding, our realization of our shortcomings and our incredible need found only in Christ, then we too are regressing. We're infants. We're in bondage. Our growth in the Lord is revealed by our increased dependence upon Him, not our increased dependence on ourself. I'm doing much better. I can now do this and I can now do that. No. It's a recognition that we are just completely utterly helpless without the Lord. Paul says as much. Look at 1 Corinthians um, chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. A little bit to your left. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. You know, we, we, we sometimes make too much of men, too much of mankind. And certainly if there was a man we can make a lot of, it would be Paul. But look how Paul holds his, himself in this, this, how he esteems himself. I would say the same thing about me. Paul says, And when I came to you, brothers, I didn't come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. If you take nothing away, know that Jesus Christ came for you and was crucified for you. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. Why? So that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, 
but on the power of God. Turn a little bit more to your left to John chapter 8. John 8, verses 31 and 32. John 8, 31. And so Jesus said to those Jews who had put their faith in Him, who had believed in Him, listen church, that's what Jesus said. If you continue, because the Galatians were discontinuing. He says, if you continue in My Word, then you are truly disciples of Mine. Why? Because you'll now know the truth and the truth will make you free. Without the truth, we are in bondage, church. We have to fight for this with everything. Everything that's within us. So I pray in 2017, may we not be, this is, may not sound like an encouragement, but it's meant to be a challenging encouragement. May we not be lazy, lethargic, sluggish, negligent, careless, couch potato-ish. Don't know if that's a word or not. Fearful, overworked, or compromising when it comes to continuing in the Word of God. Because we truly desire to be disciples of His and we want to know the truth and we want that truth to set us free and to keep us there. Not like the Galatians that were going back into bondage. It's that important. So I'd like to encourage you to perhaps do something in 2017 that you've never done before in your faith. Do something. Do something you've never done before. Or do something you have done before but somehow you lost your footing in whatever that thing is. Attend a small group. We have many of them. Home Bible fellowships, we call them. Rock University coming up. Men's and women's retreats that are coming up. Men's and women's ministries that we do every week. Maybe you're not attending weekend services as much as you perhaps know you should. To get God's Word continuing in you. Get God's Spirit in our hearts. Come to a prayer meeting. Our prayer team meets every Monday night at 7 o'clock. Every Monday. Maybe you've never come. I would encourage you, don't come every week. Don't go from zero to 52 times a year. Try once a year. Try once a quarter. Try once a month. Just try something you've never tried before. Do something to get God's Word in you, in your mind, in His Spirit, in your heart. Why? So that we may never forget that we are in Christ, that we are sons and heirs. Let me close this portion by examining the vast difference between being a servant and being a son. Listen, there's a couple things. The Son has the same nature as the Father. The servant does not. The Son has the same nature as the Father. The servant does not. When we trust Christ, the Holy Spirit lives within us. And as Peter writes in 2 Peter, we become partakers of the divine nature. The law can never give a person God's nature. Only God can do that through His Spirit. Two, the Son has a Father while the servant has a what? A Master. The son has a father while the servant has a master. No servant could ever say father to his master. When the sinner trusts Christ, the Spirit tells him that he is a child of the father. And Abba, Abba Father, Abba essentially means Papa, which shows the closeness of the child to the father. No servant has that. Third thing, the son obeys out of love while the servant obeys out of fear. The Spirit works in the heart to quicken and increase our ability to love God. Because in the next chapter in Galatians 5, it says the fruit of the Spirit is, what's the first thing mentioned? Love. 
So as God puts His Spirit inside of us, it enables us to love God because a son obeys out of love. And the law can never produce obedience. Look at John 14, 15. It says it this way. God says, if Jesus says, if you love me, that's how you'll be able to keep my commandments. You have to have the ability to love and my Spirit needs to be inside you because the fruit of the Spirit is love. Fourth, the son is rich while the servant is what? Poor. The son is rich, the servant is poor. God has made available to us, and we're not going to do... Take your phones. Neil Kohlhaas did this last night. He took his phone. He took a picture. That's the fastest way to take notes because we're not going to go through all these. So you can either write them down or take a picture with your phone. I won't be offended. God has made available to us the riches of His grace, the riches of His glory, the riches of His goodness, the riches of His wisdom. All the riches of God are found in Christ. Can I get an amen? Let me close with this story. And when I'm done with this story, I'm going to invite the worship team up. Um, and we'll close with a song. John Wesley was an honor graduate of Oxford University. He was an ordained clergyman in the Church of England and very orthodox in his theology. He was active in practical good works, regularly visiting the inmates of uh, of prisons and workhouses in London and helping distribute food and clothing to slum children and orphans. He studied the Bible diligently and attended numerous Sunday services as well as other services during the week. He generously gave offerings to the church and alms to the poor. He prayed and fasted and lived an exemplary moral life. He spent several years as a missionary to American Indians in what was then the British colony of Georgia. Yet upon returning to England, he confessed in his journal this, I, who went to America to convert others, was never myself converted to God. Later, reflecting on his pre-conversion condition, he wrote, I had even then the faith of a servant, though not that of a son. He tirelessly did everything he could to live a life acceptable to God, yet he knew something vital was missing. It was not until he went very unwillingly to it was society, which is a small group, in Aldersgate Street, one evening that he discovered and claimed true Christian life. He said, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt that I did cr- trust in Christ for the first time in Christ alone for salvation. And an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins and saved me from the law of sin and death. Things were no longer elemental for Wesley. He was no longer a child. But at the perfect time, he gave his life to Christ. And he entered into the heavenlies, it says. He did away with childish things. He committed his life to Jesus Christ. Let me pray. Thank you guys so much for being here. What a joy. And when I'm done praying uh, and the worship team finishes the song, our prayer team will be available to, to my left down here in the corner. Let's pray. Wow, Lord, we are incredibly grateful that you would redeem us, which is amazing, but that you would adopt us as well is unspeakable and unthinkable for us to comprehend. But Lord, we're trying, and we recognize that you've done that for us. And we extend our gratitude to you, Lord. We come here to express that we understand that you did that for us, and we praise you for it. God, we love you, and we thank you for all that you've done and all that you're doing. 
Jesus' name. And everyone said,